0: This is Father Wesley Walker, and you're listening to the Pastor with No Answers Podcast.
1: All right. Well, I'm excited about this episode. I think I connected with you on social media, and I always kind of have an eye for you know, people that I interact with, I'm like, huh, I wonder if they'd want to just come on the podcast. And it's always a gamble because they can be super boring or, you know, they can even, I've even had someone tell me, oh man, yeah, I'm super conversational. It'll be so much fun. And it's just like, oh, great. So the pressure's on you, my friend, to be awesome. (laughs) I'm I'm
0: totally messing around. Yeah, that's right. Well, when you sent me your Twitter message, When you sent me your Twitter message, you said, hey, are you boring? I felt like that was a lot of uh, expectations to live (laughs) up to, so I'll try my best.
1: (laughs) There you go. There you go. So seriously, I really know very little about your denomination. Uh, Basically, I was Catholic through the third grade, and then I started going to a Pentecostal church. That was my life pretty much through high school into college, and then all I've known is non-denominational since gosh, two thousand. So that's that's been my world. Like, so you are an Anglican priest, correct? That's absolutely right. Yes. Okay. All right. So, how did you become a priest, and when did you know that you wanted to do that? And you're you're like you're having either you're having a kid out of wedlock right now, and you really screwed up, and you're going to lose your job, or you guys are allowed to marry.
0: <laughs> we are allowed to marry. Yes, we are. That's one of the things that. De- de- Separates us from uh, from Catholicism, but I so my wife and I both have similar backgrounds. We were raised in uh, Baptist non denominational churches. So I was a pastoral leadership major at Liberty, uh, and the model of ministry that they were pushing in that in those classes was really oriented towards a megachurch type model. And uh, at the same time, we were attending a, a multi site megachurch here in Lynchburg, and just after being in that world and some of the things that were being taught to us, uh, in class and, and being at a church where the, the music before the s- service started was, was secular top 40 radio. And then, uh, the pastor wasn't at the location and, uh, he was being beamed in from somewhere else. And the band comes running out onto the stage to start the service and it just, it felt like a concert. And I just, we knew what we weren't, uh, we just didn't know what we, what we were yet. And so I was at a bookstore and picked up uh, Saint Athanasius's On the Incarnation with the foreword by C.S. Lewis, and just was really gripped by the beautiful theology that 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 book contains, and realized there was a big disconnect between uh, between what I was getting at class and at this church, and and what the really historic faith has been, and so we started exploring, and we looked really closely at Roman Catholicism and at Eastern Orthodoxy, and there are things about those traditions that we love and cherish, uh, but we just couldn't pull the trigger on a few of the a few specifics to those denominations and so uh, I took a, a a buzzfeed like what denomination quiz are you type test that a friend sent me, and uh, I got a hundred percent on Anglicanism and episcopalianism, wow. and so I decided well I should probably. Should probably look into this, and so we. Uh, so, we had- so let me stop you oh, right
1: there. So, basically, there's four different things that I heard: Episcopalianism, Anglicanism, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Catholicism. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, are are all of those, do they share some common ground? I mean, is there like a Cliff Notes version of of the difference between all of those?
0: Yeah. So, um, traditionally, Anglicanism and Episcopalianism have been synonymous. Okay, uh, that that has. Differed since about the mid 2000s. Um, In the mid 2000s, the Episcopal Church, uh, which is the Anglican Church of North America, or had been, uh, they started consecrating openly gay bishops who were non celibate. And so that caused a lot of conservative Episcopalians to leave. Gotcha. Um, And so those conservative Episcopalians who left are typically what we refer to now as Anglicans. So uh, the church I'm a part of, which is a result of that split is the Anglican church of North America, whereas the Episcopal church is the kind of more progressive group. That's mainline group that's left over from that. So um, we're, we're somewhat similar insofar as we have a shared heritage, but we're different insofar as we're probably the more conservative of the
1: two gotcha. groups. Gotcha. Are you, are you like, would you describe both camps as at odds with each other because of the split or are you are, are you past that or what? Um, there's definitely conflict. It was definitely worse,
0: you know, seven years ago, eight years ago, and this was actually before we were even Anglican, uh, but there were churches that tried to leave, and I I don't know how much you know about Episcopalianism, but kind of the joke is, especially in the South, uh, the Episcopal Church is where the lawyers and the doctors went, you know, and they have these historic, beautiful buildings. Yeah. So some of those churches that tried to leave, they wanted to take their buildings with them, and the Episcopal Church actually ended up suing Individual congregations and dioceses that were trying to leave for the property, uh, so they won a lot of those cases, um, and so there, that, that definitely caused a lot of hurt feelings on both sides. And yeah, we're definitely we're definitely at odds theologically, and and it it's any conflict like that that's close to home is definitely going to hurt more uh, totally. when people are fighting. So, right, you so, know, one of the one of the tragedies, I guess.
1: Of, yeah. Of yeah, totally. So this will probably sound super stupid, but like if I had to, if I had to take a stab at the difference between uh, Episcopalianism, Anglicanism, uh, as as opposed to Catholicism, I would say they look a lot this, like the same on the outside, but one's Protestant, one's Catholic, which everybody kind of knows the differences. There is that. Is that accurate? Or
0: yeah, that's definitely fair. Uh, we are both sacramental traditions. Right. So we, we both you know celebrate the Eucharist. As the That's the center of our service on Sundays. Um, but yeah, we definitely have a lot of differences. We don't have a pope. Our clergy can marry. Uh, we would kind of see Scripture as a distinct and higher authority than church tradition, whereas Catholics would kind of see those two as gotcha. synonymous. Right. So, so there are definitely differences. And of course— for us, we see Catholics as a, as an expression of apostolic Christianity. They are they have apostolic secession. Their sacraments are valid. They don't really return the favor to <laughs> us. So,
1: <laughs> so uh,
0: like I have some Catholic friends who always tell me that I need to come home, you know, and be in a in a valid expression of the church and that, yeah. and that kind of stuff. So, you know.
1: Now, but, am I correct to say that both you guys and Catholics? Are y'all all on the same page every Sunday? Like everybody's doing the same sort of mass, loose, loosely related sermons, or yeah, sort of. We definitely parts of our service will
0: be familiar to Catholics. Uh, we use the Book of Common Prayer, which is a document that was created during the Reformation period. Thomas Cranmer. Uh, it's the name of the Archbishop of Canterbury, who really was behind that. He's, he's a theological genius, kind of our Martin Luther in a way, but he uh, crafted this this Book of Common Prayer, which is was definitely based on Catholic liturgies and uh, the historic church's practice, but it also definitely added a slightly Protestant flavor to it, yeah, um, and so I you know maybe I'm biased. I think that the Book of Common Prayer is maybe the most beautiful expression and of worship in all of Christendom. Uh, and I, I I appreciate a lot of Catholic masses. Sometimes I go on Saturday night just to. It's nice to go to a service where uh, nobody really knows me, and I can kind of sit in the back and just watch and not really do anything. Yeah. And uh. And so I I love their service. There are definitely parts that are different. Um. Our, we do a corporate prayer of confession before communion, and they don't because you're required to go to private confession for them. Beforehand, yeah. so just things like that that are different, but definitely the structure's the same. My my father-in-law was raised Catholic, and when he comes and visits our church, he can he still remembers parts of the liturgy that he learned when he was seven. You yeah, know,
1: so. yeah. I mean, here here's some awful awful confessions. Like I <laughs> I mean, and and they're things that I have slowly but surely wor- I've been working myself out of, but. I mean, I, I would I would write off Catholics. I, I mean, just just the the white square that you have. I would totally think, okay, that guy is more into tradition and mm. sacraments as opposed to a relationship with God. He doesn't know what it's like to just talk to to Jesus. Like they're just into traditions, and you know, Catholic, Like I seriously. I mean, I probably had in my head for maybe most of my life that Catholics were just completely misled because they're praying to the wrong people and they're confessing <laughs> sins. And I mean, it's just it's it's an entanglement that I, I think I'm mostly out of. But it's crazy, like culturally, when I see you and I see um and, and what what do you call what you're wearing, like the white square and.
0: Oh, uh, this is a clerical. Clear. collar. yeah, yeah.
1: Yes. So when when I see that, I immediately think, okay, that dude. I don't know if if we would be able to hang out and and have a beer and watch football, <laughs> like. And I know that's I know that's wrong, and I know that's not accurate, but it's almost like okay, that dude's kind of set apart, like he's different.
0: Yes, and and you know uh, it's funny because that you would have that kind of conception because the thing that they say about Anglicans is where two or three are gathered, there's a fifth. Yeah. So we definitely know how to party, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, that is, it, there is a sense in which the collar is there f- to separate, uh, clergy from, from other people. So, uh, the black shirt symbolizes that ordinate, uh, but one of the things I've noticed that's really interesting is when I'm in public, uh, all kinds of people, Will come and talk to me. And sometimes it's really positive things that, uh, you know, they just want to share something with me or they want to ask a question. And other times it's, I get to hear all their criticisms of everything that bad that Christians have ever done. Yeah. Uh, And the point is, though, that in those situations, I get to be a pastor to them. Yeah. And I think that there's an advantage to that part of wearing the collar that goes beyond mere symbolism insofar as it gives people a sort of safe haven. Uh, even when they're out and about in yeah. public, uh, anywhere.
1: Yeah, and I, 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 I like that for sure. I, I I'm curious, like with you having listened to Bad Christian uh, a handful of times, and 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 be as honest as you can. Like, are you uneasy? Like, how does it make you feel when I really downplay my role as pastor? Because it's not in a, it's not in a way of me wanting to shirk responsibility like I don't care about people I do believe that I have a let's say natural or spiritual gift of pastoring but Mm -hmm. I definitely don't want that distinction and I think it's maybe because I see so many pastors in my shoes that magnify that and then they fall flat on their faces because they're untouchables but how uneasy are you with how I carry myself in general
0: you know I'm I'm not that uneasy I I certainly you know as far as some of the content of bad christian i I think we would disagree theologically on some things yeah but i as far as the way you carry yourself i don't I don't think that necessarily makes me uneasy i I think that one of the strengths of Anglicanism is that we're used to a bit of di- theological diversity and and diversity in practice even some Anglican priests don't like to be called father. They would rather be called reverend or pastor. And, uh, they're a little uncomfortable with some of the, some of that, what they might call cat, you know, big C Catholic, yeah. uh, symbolism. And I think that's okay. Uh, I don't, I don't necessarily think that every Anglican priest has to do it this particular way where they're called father or whatever. I don't think that's what's important. Um, and I don't think that it, you know, I think, I think fundamentally it's okay to say that we probably, we may have some differing ideas about Ministry, but I don't, I, that doesn't necessarily make me uneasy. Um, it's just, we're just in different contexts. And I yeah. think that that's, I think that's okay. Um, I think that there are probably times where it's okay to let your hair down a little bit more. And right. I think, I think I don't have a serious problem with that at all. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you ever find yourself thinking, uh, so, you know, obviously I, I probably take it to, uh, an extra level of being open and transparent and honest and all that. And and there's definitely people in my, on my team, so to speak, like non-denominational churches that would say, yeah, that's way too far. You need to limit, you know, some of that sharing to maybe three close friends and not do that publicly. But do you ever find yourself, I guess, feeling like people are perceiving you as way better than what you are, because that's, you know, I, I just just the 10 minutes that I've talked to you, you're not full of yourself, you don't think that you're, you know, way more than what, you know, you're just a genuine dude that I'm sure cares about people, and you want to dedicate yourself to ministry. Do you ever find other people, though, kind of thinking, no, that dude, he must walk on water, he must have a, a better relationship with God? I mean, how, how do you filter all that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell sometimes in public. I, I get a lot of I get two main reactions, uh, people who look at me or engage me in a really positive way and other people who, uh, all of a sudden take an interest in their shoes when I walk by. (laughs) And, uh, and I mean, you know, I, when people may have that, I think it's, it's a lack of, it's a symptom of a lack of relationship. If that's their perception that I walk on water, that I'm, you know, some extra holy person because I'm not. And I, and I think that's, I think that's one of the actual benefits of being a priest is that we get to kind of, you know, I, I get to do these sacramental actions, or I get to relay the absolution after the confession to the congregation. But none of that is because of me. Yeah. And in fact, the the church, and this is true of of Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism, but also for us, you know. A, a wicked priest uh, the 39 articles which is the anglican statement of faith say uh, that's the terminology they use a wicked priest could uh administer the sacraments and they would be valid to the people so it's it's actually quite humbling to know that you know i am in the same boat as everyone else is as far as i struggle with things i'm sinful i am definitely not perfect you can just ask my wife about that yeah um and, but i i get to see this Forgiveness happen, and this these encounters with Christ, both uh, you know relationship wise, but also sacramentally at the altar, and oftentimes I think those two are not bifurcated. I think that they're very um, closely related. But uh, so yeah, I don't. I I, it makes me a little sad when people have that view, but at the same time, I mean, I, I I do want to be able to provide leadership for people and and help when they need it, and so I'm glad if even if maybe their their preconceived notions of me are different that they may because i'm wearing a collar or whatever may feel comfortable coming up and talking to me
1: right now now would you have someone that that considers himself a part of your parish is there anyone that you would rely on for spiritual leadership or is that something uh-huh. that you reserve to other priests or your superiors or however that works
0: it kind of depends on the on the situation. So we have—I'm actually the curate, which would be like the associate pastor at our parish. Okay. So there is another priest there. He's what would be the senior pastor. So as far as how we do things at the church, I mean, he's really the boss, and I mm-hmm. sort of answer to him. And I definitely get a lot of counsel from him, and I, I would definitely consider him my spiritual leader besides my bishop, um, who is also—he's sort of the head spiritual leader of his whole diocese. But there are definitely— Individual people in the church who I feel like I can turn to, and I can talk to, and I can get their insight into uh, things from. So I, I, I absolutely would rely on certain people in the parish who I know are really solid people. In fact, there's one of these guys that I, we're trying to get him ordained uh, as we speak. So. Um, but yeah, I, de- I definitely have no reservations about that. We we do believe in because um, you hear Baptists and non denominational people kind of say, uh, "Well, I believe in the priesthood of all believers." Yeah, and we do we do believe in that. Uh, our our we differentiate between maybe kinds of priests and, and ordained people and lay people, but all believers you know have something valuable to contribute. And yeah. so far from us to neglect someone's insights just because they don't have a
1: collar on. You know, yeah, 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 totally. That's the right way to. So how 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 would you describe that? Then would you say that you you have a unique spiritual calling that other priests also have that the non priests don't have? I mean, is that is that fair?
0: Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, I think that there's a sense in which to be a Christian is to preach the gospel always. Frank, Saint Francis of Assisi is kind of misquoted as saying, preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. And I think that's a calling for all Christians. But there are specific people who are called to preach the word and administer the sacraments within the confines of the church. And so I think that's uh, that's definitely how I see myself called and how most Anglican priests would describe their calling.
1: Yeah. And so it's you didn't make... Like in in your and obviously our listeners can can make this call, but you you would say that you didn't decide this; it it chose you. Like God said, "No, I want I want Wesley to do this."
0: Yeah, I think so. I and I think there is a sense in which we cooperate with that will. So I'm just, I'm not a you know a determinist or anything like that. So I definitely cooperate. I had to answer the call, but I definitely think that men who are called to holy orders are. Done so by the Holy Spirit. and we have a we have a fairly robust process that uh, you in in you undergo that it's not just about whether you feel that call personally. it's you have a committee of people from the church who are praying with you for months. I, I think mine lasted eight months. The average one is somewhere between six months and and nine months usually um and so you just spend that time praying with them and then you spend time praying with the bishop and meeting with the bishop and talking to the bishop and being counseled by the spirit, bishop and uh and uh, that, that that whole process is long and and a lot of people don't make it through and so we definitely see the holy spirit as working in those situations to kind of help you determine whether that call is real or whether that's something that is a figment of your imagination or if maybe there's another opportunity for you to use your spiritual giftings that's not in ordained ministry, um, and so uh, I, I think it's a, a blessing to have that and to have the backing of the church going into it, um, rather than kind of deciding to strike it out on your own. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, definitely more comfort in that for me, anyways. So. Yeah,
1: totally. Well, let's get into some of the the beliefs, theologically, culturally, and all that stuff. Like, do y'all believe that? And and I. I've got a lot of these questions, so we can't get deep into any of them, but do y'all believe that the spiritual gifts are, are active today, like speaking in tongues, prophesying, and that sort of thing?
0: So one of the things you'll probably find out as we're talking through some of these issues is that I have to kind of caveat a lot of these questions sure. with what our particular uh, parish and diocese might think, but not all Anglicans think the same about uh, a lot of these things. In and fact, you guys have find- that freedom? Yes, we do. So you'll find that uh, the history of Anglicanism is one that kind of bounced back in its early phases from Roman Catholicism to uh, radical Protestantism. And then it finally kind of ended up in a moderate sort of Protestant variety. And so there have been throughout the centuries, there have been Anglicans who are very high church, very Catholic leaning, Um, the Oxford movement, John Henry Newman, um, those kind of guys uh CS Lewis might be someone who kind of leans that direction too who is anglican. Um but you also have very reformed calvinistic anglicans J I Packer and John Stott and J C Ryle are all yeah. anglican. Um you have very evangelical anglicans See, so that. John Wesley was is was anglican um until he died actually um and so you really I mean we're we're a wide tent um so we've got different kind of all right, perspectives.
1: so stop stop right there John Wesley I, that that's not Methodist.
0: Well, so he started Methodism as a as a sect within Anglicanism, and he actually was Anglican until he died. It was his followers who made Methodism a separate okay. entity. Okay. He actually said he would rather commit murder than allow a layperson to administer uh, uh, the sacrament. Uh, of Ah, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. So, oh, yeah, he, he was he was he was very Anglican, very Book of Common Prayer influenced, and and Methodists are sort of our we kind of view them as our long lost cousins, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. All right, so speaking in tongues, how about that, like Pentecostal movements and that sort of thing?
0: So our particular parish uh, tries to be what we call three streams. So first we see our identity as sacramental, and then we see our identity as scripture-centered. Yeah. Uh, But the last one is spirit-filled, and so we definitely don't want to quench the spirit. We believe he moves uh, within the congregation and within the, the ministers, and so we don't preclude speaking in tongues necessarily. We definitely believe it has to uh, kind of follow Paul's uh, plan in first Corinthians where there needs to be an interpreter and it has to follow certain structures and, and our, our service is highly structured uh, for that reason to kind of avoid the yeah. chaos that might come from charismania. But we definitely don't want to be the opposite where it's only about the the liturgy and we kind of lose any, interest in the spirit moving. So it's it's a balance we try and strike. And yeah, so yeah. speaking in tongues would not be something that we're necessarily opposed to. In fact, I've heard priests do it. I heard one of the priests uh, who came and assisted us for a while did it to, uh, with our music team before the service even started. And I've uh, actually seen a Catholic lady who comes and visits speak in tongues there too. So we're definitely open to it. We're I, I'd say open but cautious is yeah, probably yeah. a good description that, of that. our...
1: That's so interesting, too, because exactly how you described the way in which you temper your gatherings so it doesn't lend itself to chaos. I would say non-denominational churches, or at least the ones that I've been accustomed to, they do the same thing just in a different way. Like we have an order of service. No, well, after the two songs, are going into the message. No, 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 no. You can't. We're not extending this thing here because you know you typically have to get people in and out because you have multiple services and stuff. So that's that's super interesting. What about? I think,
0: oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Well, I was going to say I think I mean you hear the word liturgy thrown around in more sacramental traditions that get kind of accused of being not spirit filled. You know, Catholics have a liturgy, Orthodox have a liturgy, Anglicans have a liturgy, but I think really we all have a liturgy. I think having a liturgy is inevitable. It's just a question of what does that liturgy reflect? What are the theological values underlying that liturgy? And so I think, um, you know, sometimes people will say, "Oh, I'm not really into liturgical worship," and then they'll say they go to a non-denominational church that very much sounds like what you describe. And that sounds to me like a kind of liturgy. So,
1: yeah, yeah, totally. All right, so how about the afterlife? Is are, you guys have traditional views as far as heaven and hell?
0: Um, again, we've got some uh, mixtures in there. I mean, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce is a huge book for me on how I might think about the afterlife, and that's certainly. Uh depends on on who you ask and what it is you mean by traditional i suppose
1: yeah uh, I, I reckon people that accepted Christ, they get to be with him forever, and then the people that did not they're they're somewhere consciously being tormented in some sort of way
0: yeah that's that's probably the default view for most Anglicans. I think that um some of us believe in purgatory uh the thirty nine articles uh technically that that's our statement of faith basically, but that they technically forbid the Romish doctrine of purgatory, but that doesn't necessarily sound to me like you can't believe in purgatory at all. It just means you can't believe in the abusive version of purgatory. So some of us believe in, in a version of purgatory uh, and definitely heaven and hell. Um, you know, I, I like C.S. Lewis's approach uh, to the question where he kind of concludes that the doors of hell are locked from the inside and not the outside. And yeah. uh, oftentimes I describe myself as a, as a hopefulist. So I hope that there's an opportunity for, those people, but I can't really be certain that there is or is not. And so I try not to conclude too firmly one way sure, or the other.
1: Sure. Yeah. How about infant baptism? You guys baptize mm-hmm. little babies?
0: Yes. I, In fact, uh, you know, my wife and I, we're getting ready to have our first child any day now. Yeah. And I will baptize him the night before Easter at our Easter vigil nice. service. And I cannot wait to do
1: that. Nice. Uh,
0: I think not only is it adorable, but I think it's theologically one of the most concise pictures of how grace works. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this child is coming to the font of baptism, and they did nothing to deserve it, right. uh, or they didn't choose it. Uh, but nevertheless, this grace is being bestowed on them um, in, a, in a special way, and the Holy Spirit is moving in their lives. And, and that's, I think, just a, such a cool picture to see.
1: Yeah, now, does that, does that basically lock them in for salvation?
0: Uh, Well, we would say they are. Uh, in fact, after the baptism is over, you know, in the prayer, we say, we thank you for this child who is now regenerate by the Holy Spirit. And, um, and then we anoint them with oil and we say, uh, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own. And so they're definitely a part of the church uh, as much as anyone else is. But like anything, I mean, as they grow up, they're free to leave the church. Uh, they could decide after going through confirmation classes that, that the church is not for them or yeah. even as adults they could walk away from the faith. Um and I in those situations I think we have to trust in the mercy of God and hope that he can woo them back to himself. But I don't I don't necessarily um yeah, I, I mean I don't think I don't know if locked in is the term, but <laughs> I, I do believe I do believe in their security so long as they uh continue in the faith, I suppose would be right. the way to explain it. How,
1: yeah, how do you guys filter through the whole free will, Calvinism, once saved, always saved, you can lose sure. your salvation, all that sort of thing?
0: Yeah, it, again, it depends on who you ask. we got some really Calvinist people, and we got some not-so-Calvinist people. I, am myself, am not-so-Calvinist. I, I have been highly influenced by C.S. Lewis and yeah. all that, so I, I definitely believe that uh, that God has what we call prevenient grace. He makes the first move towards us and enables us to respond to Him, and um, we can also reject him, and I think there are lots of examples in Scripture of people rejecting him, and I I have been an example of someone rejecting him at times in my life, and yeah. so, um, so. But you'll find Anglicans who are five point Calvinists who, you know, they'll they'll be they'll argue with you about it just like any other Calvinist would. So
1: now now Catholicism doesn't have that same sort of liberty with mm. doctrine, does it?
0: Yes, and that is often one of the ways that we're critiqued by Catholics, is they'll say uh, we're sort of wishy-washy. I I like to use the term flexible, but I guess it's a matter of perspective. But some issues, they're very very flexible on, Catholics can be. And then other issues, they're not, but they don't really enforce them. I mean, uh, I don't know how familiar you are. Father James Martin, who's a Jesuit, I mean, he's an LGBT-affirming Priest in the Catholic Church who's actually pretty high up yeah. and has written books on the subject and uh, hasn't really been formally disciplined so yeah. i know it's like they don't have flexibility but they sort of do anyways and kind of a an interesting system
1: yeah, so I know the uh, you you kind of explained how two groups kind of went in two different directions. would you say that most uh, uh, Anglicans are not Affirming or or what people would call Affirming for the LGBTQ yeah.
0: In the Anglican Church of North America We are not LGBT affirming in the sense That we would Condone relation, same sex Relationships of sexual nature uh, Or we also wouldn't do Marriages Yeah, That's not to say that we wouldn't welcome LGBT people into our church and offer them a spiritual home and uh, a very warm welcome I mean I, I certainly would hope that anyone of any sexual orientation would come to our church and hear the gospel proclaimed and want to participate in the life of the church we would just ask that they uh, you know I mean maintain the same kind of sexual conduct expectations that we would ask of anyone in our church I mean we wouldn't want you know, anyone committing sexual immorality and that's kind of how we would view, uh, active same sex actions. So, uh, you know, but we would handle those situations with grace and with love and we want to be humanizing to, to everyone and not, you know, treat them as if yeah. they're less than merely because of that. Um, yeah. so I, I, you know, we, as the church, as a whole in America, I think could handle that issue a little better, but Go Anyways, figure, man, I, go figure yeah, yeah right, exactly, <laughs> yeah, you
1: know, you know it's crazy, and um interestingly enough, um, after I get off with with you, I'm gonna be interviewing another uh listener of this podcast who actually reached out to me in appreciation with how uh the bad christian guys and and me on Pastor with no answers mm-hmm. handles. Um, the lgbtq community as a as a lesbian she actually mm. says look i was brought up in the conservative mindset as well and she is very comfortable with our approach of hey we don't have all the answers we we don't have it figured out we were just you know basically non affirming clearly maybe a year and a half ago and now we're, we don't feel that way at all you know and it's just like right. What what I understand, I understand the LGBT com- community, they've been burned and abused by the church at such a deep level to where I, I don't want to make rules on how they get to respond to, uh, you know, to Christians and church and everything. But I do, I would want to encourage people that are on the affirming side to understand that there are people that, they can they can't help what they believe it's, it uh-huh. there, there's no hate involved there's no uh i don't want to fellowship with these people involved it's a <laughs> matter of I believe that the Bible is teaching this, and I wish it didn't but yeah. that's just where i'm at you know i I think there yeah. could be some understanding on both sides of the fence, but like i like I said, I think at some point I need to be hands off. When it comes to how that community feels, because my mm-hmm. gosh, you're right, man. The church has certainly mishandled that one. Um, yeah, it's
0: it's tough because it's it's easy to get extreme, at least rhetorically extreme on on either side. In fact, I was I was on. I'm a big uh, hockey fan. I was watching the Carolina Hurricanes, which is my team, and uh, they had a they had a Pride Night a couple weeks ago and uh they had like an lgbt activist drop the puck before the game and i'm in a fan group for hurricanes on facebook facebook and a guy had made a comment about how he's kind of uncomfortable with the lgbt theme of the evening and you know just didn't want his his sports being politicized kind of the conversation that's been happening with sports all, all over and uh and a bunch of people reacted really strongly against this guy as if he had you know said that he kills children and eats them sometimes it was bad and I made a comment just saying it's kind of ironic that you know on a night where the motto is hockey is for everyone that this guy's being decried just for articulating this opinion and I get this message from this woman that was just like you know if there's a hell you're going to be the first one in line and blah 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 and it's like wow this is sad that we're at this Level of rhetoric where we can't just have a reasonable conversation about the issue. I I mean, I think I think there's uh, I think there are lots of good discussions that could be happening. but I think often we don't have them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think given like that lady that you just described, given the degree that that's a hot button for her. That's gotta be revealing of something, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Like she, she does not, she does not see that as, you know, in in her mind, that's a sin. She doesn't see it as just one sin of many different types of sins. She sees it as like the ultimate. I mean, it's well, just, no, she was
0: the opposite. She was affirming. Oh, gotcha. Okay, I misunderstood because I was saying this guy who was maybe not gotcha. as affirming as she wanted him to be was, gotcha. yeah, so. So it was the opposite, but I certainly you could point to other examples yep. where the opposite has been the case too so it's it's both you know both yep. extremes, so we could have a I think a really good conversation about that topic. We just haven't
1: yeah absolutely. Haven't
0: been doing so <laughs>
1: yep, yep totally, all right, so wrapping this thing up here in a second, but like with our with our church, we have uh typically larger crowds on Sunday mornings, and so we tell people, look, if you really want to experience." being a part of a family of believers then we have what you call small groups. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. some people call them community groups and all all that sort of thing. What, what is y'all's like, how much do y'all value community? And does that just kind of like, it seems like my memories of Catholicism, they had pancake breakfasts, they had like (laughs) prayer groups and it seems like they did community pretty, pretty decently. But like, what's your take on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, community is
0: so important. Uh, we are—as Christians, we're not lone wolves. We're members of, a, of the body of Christ, of community, um, and so we definitely value that. Now, our, our particular parish is fairly small. We're sort of in Baptist City here in Lynchburg, um, and so not a lot of uh, <laughs> Anglicans around. And uh, so we're, we're fairly small. We've got about 30 to 35 people on an average Sunday uh but but because of that we have a very tight community i mean it's it's kind of like our church is a community group and uh and so we do a lot we do uh evening prayer on sunday nights and then uh we do evening prayer and communion on wednesday nights and we uh we definitely do a lot of kind of christian education activities we do bible studies and book studies and and all that kind of stuff and so we definitely value community some of our best friends are people who are at our church, and and it's a definitely a robust community that I think is attractive to a lot of people who come and visit. They end up really liking that. You know, when you're not here on Sunday, people actually miss you when you're gone. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and all that. And and there is a sense of accountability with that. And and I, so yeah, I, I, we could not value community higher. I don't think it's it's highly important for for Christians. Yeah. To...
1: Yeah, you, you know what is is appealing to me and. Correct me if you think I'm wrong here. It seems like you guys, along with um, you know, Episcopalians and, and Catholics Y'all kind of somehow avoid the Christian culture, pop culture, Christianese culture. Like seriously, like I, I, I wouldn't see you as coming up to me and elbowing me and say, "Hey man, how's your walk going? Like, are you on, yeah, are you on fire do for life together, bro? Yeah, exactly. Like, how do you guys avoid
0: all that, man? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think one of the things that we do, and, and and I think this is a, a positive of being in a, a sacramental tradition, is that we really shift the focus away from experientialism. Now, that doesn't mean that experience is bad or not important, but that when people come to church—like, there are Sundays I get up, and I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be around people. I want to watch football. Uh, but I go and I say the prayer of confession while I'm on my knees and I receive absolution of my sins. And then I go to the altar and I, I take communion and and all that. And I, and that's just such a, that's such a, what I might call a capital R real experience, you know, and it's just hard to want to substitute that with, with other things, with like the, the rock band or with the, you know, doing life together kind of <laughs> mentality. And, I, I, and not that those things are all bad either. Right. I mean, it's it's easy to sound snobby when we're talking about that. It's not that it's bad. It's just that, to me, I think that there, I, I, I just, I, I walk away from our service, even when I go into it not wanting to be there, feeling fed. And I know that I've been fed because this is an objective thing that happens during the liturgy, um, during the service. And so, I, I, you know, I, I think that when we're having that experience, it is maybe less anthropocentric, uh, less centered around us, and yeah. more theocentric. Um, and so, I, I think that's one of the strengths of being in a liturgical. It may be less boring. Like maybe we're not going to do life together or, or whatever, <laughs> but but uh, but I mean, we are doing life together, um, right. and so it's we're just maybe <laughs> avoiding some of the cliches. Yeah, totally.
1: Now, what would like very. Um personally minded question here where is your faith rooted like uh, you know have you had any experiences that that you can revert back to or is it strictly man I, I trust the traditions of my forefathers and the faith or like if if someone said look I really want to believe in God and I respect you as a person like how why do you believe like I I, I need help help me with my faith why do you <laughs> believe
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think that there are a lot of ways to answer that too. I, I, every Sunday, while it's not experientialism, that objective reality that comes from what I think, I, I think scripture testifies to it, I think that the church tradition testifies to it, that objective sense of knowing that God is working on your behalf in the Eucharist, um, in the sacraments, um, in the absolution. I I mean, I think living in that rhythm replaces any singular experience that I've ever had, if that makes sense. And I've had spiritual experiences. I've been a Christian since I was little. Um, And so I I definitely have a number of those that I think confirm the larger narrative of Christianity and my walk and all that. But that that rhythm is just so powerful to yeah. me, um, because it, it does kind of take the burden off the individual. It's not about trying hard that's not what gets you there. It's this act that God has done for us, and it's a constant reminder of that um, and it's just it's so it's so interesting when it kind of juxtapose living that rhythm versus kind of living word I was raised in and, and kind of that kind of mega church mentality, uh, not to bash mega Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't sound like I'm being no. super, uh, so, so <laughs> super when, condescending, but
1: so when you think of communion, for example, I, I just want to make sure that I'm not missing something like, mm-hmm. is there, is there anything deeper than what it represents? Like, is there something active and living in that when, when you guys take communion? Yes. Yeah, Does that make so, sense?
0: Yes, absolutely. So, and, you know, Catholics uh, have what they call transubstantiation, right. yeah. you know, it becomes totally physically, with that. Yep. yeah, the body and blood of Christ. We don't necessarily use the term transubstantiation, but we do use the term real presence. Okay. So when we drop the wine or the bread, I mean, that's dropping the body and blood of Christ. We don't explain how it happens, which is kind of what transubstantiation does. We just know that it does. And so it is a mystery, We can't fully explain it, but we know that Christ has said, this is my body, this is my blood. And Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, when he's kind of juxtaposing communion with food sacrificed to idols, he says, is this bread not the body of Christ, and is this wine not the blood of Christ? So we take that very seriously. Um, And when when I give someone communion, I say, the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, keep your body and soul in everlasting life. And then with the wine, we say, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation— and so there's a sense in which it represents something, it's a drama, we're reenacting this drama of salvation, uh, but there's also a sense in which Christ is really there, mm-hmm. and we go to the altar and we receive the sacrifice that he gave for us, but we also sacrifice ourselves, Romans 12, 1, you know, uh, be a mm-hmm. living sacrifice. Um, so there's definitely a deeper reality that occurs there where I think we are given uh what are the other priests at our church called food for the journey you know yeah and uh, and i think that there's something profound about coming back to that week after week after week and knowing i need this uh i need christ i need to be in christ i need him to be in me and uh, living out that reality in the liturgy helps us understand how that might look on a day to day basis a little bit more, I think so
1: that 's pretty cool i I mean that really is neat i i I wish I was there completely with you, but it like uh, le, le, well let me let me ask you this like when when we take communion on a sunday mm-hmm. let 's say let 's say i 'm like nah that that Wesley guy that makes a lot of sense can i can I partake in that communion? on a Sunday morning in a movie theater in the same way that you are because of belief or is this only something that you guys have access to because of like a chain of spiritual command? And I'm mm-hmm. not trying to be cynical at all. I'm sure. sure.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's a great question. And it's one that I, I I've kind of wrestled with a little bit um, because I guess to us, we know um, at least based on our understanding of scripture and tradition, we kind of know where the church is. So the church is, based on the apostolic teaching and secession that's been laid down over the centuries. Um, it's in the sacraments as kind of rightly understood by the early church that's in Scripture that's been passed down um, through the centuries. And so, you know, I can say, I know my Catholic friends are definitely getting this, and my Orthodox friends are definitely getting this, and we're definitely getting this, although they wouldn't, again, return the favor for us. Right. But, um, but I think that the beauty of having a more mysterious view about what exactly is happening at communion. But knowing that it's an objective reality means that I think that it can be experienced outside of those kind of visible markers of apostolic succession or whatever. So I don't know exactly what happens at at the movie theater with communion, but I kind of— have some sort of faith that maybe even in spite of what some of the people there might believe um, I've been to some of those churches and they're usually pretty explicit. This is a symbol, you know, this is not anymore. Um, But I think even in spite of that, that that the Holy spirit can move and work for those people that, that have faith in him and that love him. And so I certainly would never say that it can't, I don't know that it can, I could say it's, I, here's a way that we know and that, that Christ has given us, but he can certainly work outside of those means. Um and I think that he probably often works in spite of us in all kinds of ways. and I think that's true of our church and any other church. so yeah, now I definitely preclude it.
1: Now it is what's the um what's the prerequisite to receive communion?
0: So we tell people when they visit, uh, and this is one of the things that separates us from Catholics and Orthodox is that if you've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and you're unaware of any unconfessed serious sin in your life, then you can come take communion. Um, So my Baptist family can come take communion. My wife's Baptist family can come take communion, and we love it when they do. Gotcha. Um, And, you know, it's not about assent to our particular understanding of communion. Um, In fact, some of the most profound words I've ever read about communion were written by a a mentally disabled girl who could not possibly have understood the theological tomes uh, that have been written on The Eucharist. I mean, it's just simple, but it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, And and so I I I don't think that that's the metric that we use to to keep people from the table. We pray a prayer of confession in the liturgy. We don't require people come to private confession. We encourage it. Some people should, but not everyone has to. Um, And so you know if if someone can kind of check their own conscience and there's nothing serious that they need to deal with prior to coming, then they're welcome to come, and we we welcome them at the table.
1: Nice. Nice. That's awesome, man. All right. So the last question I got to ask you, man, what is a holy guy like you doing listening to Bad Christian? <laughs> now, well, <laughs> all, all, I started... all joking aside, like, would you get in trouble? <laughs> no, I
0: don't, no, I wouldn't get in trouble. I, I, I try and read widely and read well. And I also listen to a lot of podcasts. I work at a, a private classical school uh, about 45 minutes away from my house uh, in Roanoke. And so I, I listen to tons of podcasts. Um, and I've been listening to Bad Christians since it came out when I turned eighteen. uh One of the presents that I got was I got to go to an Emory concert nice. uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. They were touring with uh Hawkboy, which was as Cities Burn after they broke up and uh and so i I followed Emory for a long time, and so when I saw their podcast, I was still an undergrad, and i I don't even think I was Anglican at the time, so I started listening back then. And then I just have kept listening, and even when I disagree, I mean, I think it's good to engage and to be listening and to be thinking about some of the issues that are raised, and so I might conclude differently than you all, but I certainly appreciate hearing kind of the perspectives that are raised there. Um, oh, Awesome. Well, so, it, I, I, yeah.
1: yeah, it actually means a lot to have a, a diverse group of listeners. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate your time. I actually do feel way more knowledgeable, and I really, really like what you guys do, man. I, I'm not just saying yeah. that, it's really cool. So, congratulations to you and your wife. I think she's signaling that you guys need to leave right this second. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we've been, we're nine days overdue at this point. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah our our first was seven days overdue but Oof. we we had it scheduled so we're like uh, if, if if it's seven days after we're gonna take that thing out so well if you
0: think about it she's gonna be induced on thursday if he's not here so prayers are appreciated awesome. uh, uh, leading up to that so
1: awesome well wesley thank you so much man yeah thank you if you're ever in lynchburg come
0: uh, come worship with us